Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, which you will find in the Old Testament section of our Pew Bibles on page 880 or on screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Prepare our heart, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amos chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me, a basket of summer fruit. He said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, says the Lord God. The dead bodies shall be many, cast out in every place. Be silent. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin, bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who lives in it? and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? On that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on all loins and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The time is surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, again, the Lord be with you. Let me make sure that I'm on here. I am on. It is great to be in God's house with you this morning and to see so many of you here today. Last week, I left our church feeling doubly blessed, triply blessed. One reason why I felt so blessed leaving here last week was just walking outside and seeing the array of First Presbyterian folks on the front lawn. And I was so grateful to our deacons for yet again another successful and wonderful hot dog social. I could see people up and down Chicago Avenue wondering what's going on. And I just felt that that is so important, 
the hot dog is important too, let me be specific. But what is so important is that uh, we are seeking to be a community. We're building up the community and eating together is one of the ways we can do that. So I, I left here last Sunday feeling very full in my heart. But I also went home grateful last Sunday because after the message and the worship service last Sunday, several of you said to me, Pastor Ray, I have never read the book of Amos and I'm gonna give it a try. And I like that because anytime, listen, this is one of those immutable laws of the kingdom. Anytime you pick up God's word and begin to read it, something will begin to shift in your life because the Holy Spirit will help you to understand what God is saying to you and it will be transformative in your own life. It will be. So it's a huge spiritual leap whenever we take the time to hear God's word. Last week, I also met with a couple who is new to our church and it's always great to see new faces. I mean, it just says to me that God is drawing people to this fellowship. But I met with this couple, they're new to Evanston, they're new to our church, and they wanted just to meet with me. They wanted to, they had a lot of questions about our historic congregation, not just the history, but just so much of who we are as a church. But then they said one thing that touched me. It touched me. They said, over our several visits to First Prayers, they said, no one talks to us. No one greets us. And uh, they said, whether in the church, of course we do the passing of the peace, but after the service or on the front lawn, they said, you know, we send around and, you know, and they said, we understand. People, we get into our little groups. And of course, I apologize to them and I try to assure them that I know our congregation. I know that we are a wonderful church. We're a welcoming church. We are a church that reaches out. And um, I just wanted to ask a big favor of you because I know sometimes, you know, we're just sort of regathering. We're starting to get our groove back. We're starting to come back into the rhythm of what it means to be, to, to, to worship on a weekly basis. I just want to ask you to, as a body, let's be open, eyes wide open. Let's be attentive and let's greet one another in the name of the Lord and genuinely welcome families and individuals here to our church. Here's what I try to remind people of, that when people are looking for a church, they're not looking for the building. Of course, they want to get to the building, but it's more than that. It's more than the music. When people come to a church, they're looking for, they're looking for community. Thank you. All right. So you guys heard me preaching and you didn't say, What's, we can't hear you, huh? All right, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. When people come to our church, they're looking for community. They're looking for a friendly face. And let your face be one of those friendly faces, okay? Can you say amen to that? Yeah. Starting today. Amen to that? starting right after worship. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. All right, I think you're with me now. 
So if you were paying attention to Amos's words in chapter eight, chances are, and, I, and I'll tell you, I, I've been trembling reading Amos. You no doubt felt a little queasy, a little troubled in your spirit. And if you felt that, I am with you. I'm with you on that. But I want you to remember that we're not and will not be the first people to hear the words of a prophet and to say, I don't know about that. Remember last week, that priest for hire called Amaziah, when he heard Amos's words, he was, he was beside himself. He actually told him to get out of Dodge, get out of Bethel, don't ever come back here. Go back to your little country home. And I have a feeling that during this time, while Amos is in Bethel, I have a feeling that Amos was ostracized. Amos was blacklisted. I have a feeling that nobody had Amos on their dinner list. I'm telling you, because they said, this guy's negative. And as you know, I celebrate the public reading of scripture. When we were looking at, at the New Testament book of um, Colossians, at the very end of it, Paul encouraged the church to publicly read the letters that were being sent to the churches. I believe in the public reading of scripture. And so when our lector, Lisa, completed her reading of the text, she said to us and to those of you online, this is the word of the Lord. And we responded, thanks be to God. And we were responding, thanks be to God for the words of Amos. And my question to all of us this morning is, do we really believe that scripture is the word of God? Do we believe that? And you don't have to answer. You can answer in your mind. You can answer with your lips. That's okay. Are we truly thankful each Sunday or has our response become this automatic, disconnected, sort of robotic utterance? The reader says, this is the word of the Lord, and we just robotically say, thanks be to God. Something to think about, right? When, when Amos prophesied his weighty words in the early 8th century BCE, and when he said, thus says the Lord, or when he says, this is what the Lord says, I wonder, what do you think? Did any of his hearers say, thanks be to God? Probably, probably not. We're told, we're told in 1 Kings 12, 28, that Jeroboam, who was a servant of the king, who would eventually become the king who replaces Solomon, that he left Israel and went far away because Solomon knew what he was up to. He wanted to be king. And so when Jeroboam became king, Solomon died and Jeroboam became king, he brought a whole new thing. He had a whole new strategic plan. And what did he do? It says the king, and here you could insert Jeroboam, took counsel and made, listen to this, two calves of gold. And you say, well, why is Pastor Ray talking about Jeroboam? And he was just talking about Amos. Because if you go back to Amos chapter 1, it said that Amos prophesied during the reigns of King Jeroboam and Uzziah. 
between these two kings. He was prophesying. So that's why we're talking about this guy here, because if you understand what he did, you'll understand our reading this morning. So what did he do? He took counsel. He made two caps of gold. He said to the people, people of Israel, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Remember that? Do you remember you read uh, what Moses' brother said? It's very similar. Golden calf, here is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And what does Jeroboam do? What does he do? He builds a, a, a temple with one of the golden calves in north in the in, the, in the, uh, the tribe of Dan. And then down south in Bethel, he builds another temple with the golden calf. And he says, we want the people in Israel to either go north or south. We don't want them to go to Jerusalem to worship God. Because if they go to Jerusalem to worship God, chances are they will meet the real God. So we want to keep them deluded. We want to keep them confused. We want to keep them focused on the God that we made. So he made these two golden calves. And you know what the Bible said about what Jeroboam did? The Bible says, and the thing that he did became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one at Bethel or the other as far as Dan. And my question to you this morning, and it's a very pertinent question, and you say, well, why are we reading the prophets? They died over 3,000 years ago. Why read them in this time? Because we still struggle with determining which is the real God. What happens to any community when the Lord is rejected, when the Lord is replaced, and God is set aside in the people's minds? What happens to them? Well, one thing I think happens and you heard it in the reading, and this is from 1 Kings 12, that we have a diminished view of sin. When God is no longer God in our lives, we have a diminished view of sin. And if we have an anemic view of sin, then the songs that we were singing, nothing but the blood, and singing about the sacrificial life of Christ and his death on the cross, then we end up preaching a cheap gospel. And we end up pointing people to a cross that is meaningless. It's just a decoration for the communion table. And then we end up worshiping a Messiah who is sort of this wonderful imaginative thought that fills our hearts and our minds, but he never really rose from the dead. If God is not God, then we have no gospel. And if God is no longer God, then we see people we see people as things to be used, and we see things as things to be loved. We love things and we use people when we lose our vision of God. Now, I know that some of you are already thinking about becoming covenant members of this congregation, and, and I'm always encouraging people to, to get attached to a congregation. Don't, don't float. Don't church shop, don't church hop. Uh, get rooted in an imperfect church somewhere. And so we always encourage people, you're welcome to go through our Life Together class. That's, been, that's being offered three times a year. And here in 2022, we've already done two of those classes. And there is one more that's coming up in the fall. And one of the first things we do, if you come to one of those classes, the first thing we do, we don't talk to you about the history of our church. We don't talk to you about our leaders. We don't talk to you about our buildings. We don't talk to you about our ministries or even our mission. 
One of the first things that we do before we talk about anything else is that we talk about God. A.W. Tozer summarized, I think, the entirety of Christian discipleship when he says, when he said, what comes, to, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to say that again so that it lands somewhere for you. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And what the church means when it says the word God reveals everything about our life and our worship. And so if somebody came from Mars and came to First Press this morning and just what we've said about God, they could go home just with the songs we've already sung to know that these people clearly aren't worshiping themselves. They're looking beyond themselves to this God who came in the person of Jesus. Because if we begin with the wrong conception of God, we will misconstrue the entirety of Christian faith. And if we can reject the God as revealed in Scripture, then we can and will reject everything else. So we have one more class that is coming in the fall. And I know that uh, the leaders of the Life Together series would be more than happy to invite you to come and to be part of that. And like I said, when you come, the first thing out the gate, we talk about Reformed theology. During the class, we reflect on the attributes of God. The God the Christian church worships is holy. Did you know that? God is holy. And this is why every attempt that churches around the world have tried to reduce Christianity and Sunday worship to a party continues to fail. We're not a club. We're not an inwardly focused group. We're fighting that. The God that we worship is holy. What are some of the attributes of God? Well, God is love. And, you know, people, we, we all know that God is love. Love is the very nature of God, but, but love is not God. And I know sometimes we, we conflate this idea of love and we assume then that love is God. Love is not God. God is almighty. God is present everywhere. God knows everything there is to be known. God is eternal. God is unchanging. And God is just. One of the ways that you can tell the difference between a true and a living God, between golden calves and the God of heaven and earth, between the fake and the false God, is that the fake God, the golden calf, will never tell you anything that will make you angry and uncomfortable. Did you know that? So if you read Amos and you are uncomfortable, hey, you are face-to-face you are -face with the real God. If you read some book and they tell you, don't worry, you, you're fine, you didn't do anything wrong, then you know you're listening to a false God. So let's take the test. Let's see if these words are the words of a dead God or the words of a living and true God. You know, the text, as you heard Lisa re read it, it, begin, it, it starts with a Hebrew pun. It starts with a word game where the Lord God showed Amos a basket of summer fruit. 
And God asked Amos the question, Amos, what do you see? And Amos said, Lord, I see a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to Amos, the end has come upon my people Israel. One of the things I enjoyed when I was in seminary, and I don't get to do it in a disciplined way anymore, is to study the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew, the word for fruit and the word for end is like a play on words. It's a pun. The Hebrew word for fruit is kayitz, and the word for end is ketz. And you see, for Amos and the people of Israel, a basket of summer fruit would have been a very familiar sight. From late September to mid-October, God's people would celebrate harvest, and then seven weeks before the, the seven days before the end of that harvest, God's people would celebrate the feast of booths or booths or Sukkoth. It was kept for seven days. You could read that in Deuteronomy 16. It was a time of joyous celebration. It's almost like what we would call our Thanksgiving, at least what Thanksgiving used to be. A time of joyous celebration as God's people would celebrate God's provision for them. But it was also a time of looking back because during the Feast of Booths and, the, the, and Sukkot, they would look back and remember that as they traveled the, that arduous journey through the wilderness, those 40 years in the wilderness, God provided for them. And so it's an important celebration, even to this day, among the people of Israel. For the people of Israel in this time then, the basket of summer fruit meant the end of the harvest season. But for the Lord, the basket of summer fruit signified the end of God's patience. And now there would come a season of judgment. So let's get real here. For the average North Shore resident, for the average Chicagoan, divine judgment is one of the most offensive Christian doctrines that we could ever talk about. You need to know that. Do you remember back in the 90s, might have been the late 80s, early 90s, when Robert Bella, sociologist, wrote that influential book called Habits of the Heart? Do you remember that book? Some of you may have read it. And if you read it, and it's still worth reading today, in it he uses that popular phrase, expressive individualism. At the time when he wrote those words, this is what the book says, 80% of Americans at that time, this is early, late 80s, early 90s, 80% of Americans agreed with this statement. He agreed with this statement that an individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. And he concludes then that the most fundamental belief in American culture is that moral truth is relative to individual consciousness. Individual consciousness, moral truth. How I feel, how God feels. The self is now on the throne. Our culture, therefore, has no problem 
with a God of love who supports us no matter how we live. It does, however, objects strongly to the idea of a God who punishes people, who judges people, even though those folks are sincerely believing the falsehoods. God of love, yes. God of judgment, absolutely not. Why then, and we come back to the text, why then would God declare that the end has come upon the people of Israel? And if you look at the text very quickly, you will see some of the reasons. One reason is in verse 4, where they were mistreating the vulnerable. That hasn't changed, has it? We live in a culture where people mistreat the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. We say the immigrant, the Bible calls it the foreigner. They were mistreating those four classes of people. Another reason pops up in the text, for many, worship had become a chore. I can't bother going to church. I can't bother with the festivals. I can't bother going to the temple. And while they're in the worship, they're saying to themselves, well, I can't wait for this boring service to end. I can't wait to get back to my office on Monday morning so I can start overcharging and cheating my fellow human beings. And you see that in verses 5 and 6, greed and economic dis dis uh, injustice. But I think the root, the root of Israel's problem stemmed from their rejection of Yahweh and their acceptance of those two golden calves as, to, as the God who delivered them. And so the judgment on these people, we read in verse 10, would be great. It would be so painful, the Bible says, so disruptive that it is compared. It is compared. And I don't know of any other pain as human beings that we can endure compared to the loss of a child. It will be like you've lost your child and you're beside yourself with grief. In Christianity, then, God is both a God of love and a God of justice. And many people struggle with this. They don't believe that a loving God, they believe that a loving God cannot be a judging God. I've been a pastor a fairly long time. And I've met with skeptics, and I've met with saints, and that question always comes up. How can a God of love be also filled with wrath and filled with anger? So, a little bit of experiment here. Raise your hand if, raise your hand if you heard about that Highland Park shooting. Okay, put your hand down. Raise your hand if you were angry when you heard about the Highland Park shooting. My hand is already going up. Okay, put your hand down. How many of you heard about the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas? Okay, put your hand down. How many of us were angry, angry, when we heard about those, that shooting where the kids and the teachers died? How many of us are aware that in the last few weeks, it's well over 100, maybe 200 young kids, some of them babies, months old, who have been shot and killed, caught in the crossfire between warring gangs, and these babies in, in the city of Chicago are dying. How many of you are angry at that? So, if you're angry, does it mean you're not loving? Does it mean because you're angry at that kind of wickedness that you are no longer a loving person? How many of you believe that if you're angry at evil, 
If you're angry at injustice, it means then that you are no longer a loving person. Raise your hand. Becky Pippard wrote a wonderful little book, Hope Has Its Reasons. And she said this, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. I'm a father of a daughter and two boys, and I am passionate about my kids and when I remember when when Jadine actually it was Ray when Ray was in kindergarten we were in North Carolina at the time and there were some things that were happening and we in our estimation we thought the teacher was being unfair and man I was angry I wasn't gonna hurt the teacher but I was angry why I had this passion for my children and we wanted to rectify the situation and we did do we, do we then respond when we see our loved ones be in trouble, when we see people we care about being misused, abused, do we respond with benign intolerance as we might towards strangers? No. Here's the thing. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate, she says in her book, is indifference. And then she jumps from there to the point I'm trying to make, that God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but God's settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. A God who does not judge. Our wickedness is not worthy of worship. And I've thought about this. A God who does not judge leaves the door open. You know where the Bible says, where the Lord says to us, vengeance is mine, I will repay? Well, if we don't have a God like that, and God is passive, and God is indifferent, and God is just love, this syrupy, amorphous love, then the door now comes open where we say, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, which it already is. But in the Christian vision of the world, we understand that there is a God, as some say, who sits high and looks low. There is a God who is a God of justice, a God who sees, a God who knows, a God who has a plan, a God who is merciful. And in an appointed time, this God will act. I think the greatest loss, though, is what we heard Mr. Jim talking about in verses 11 and 12. This is the ultimate judgment, where God says in Amos 11 and verse 12 that the time is surely coming, says the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a, not a famine of bread or of thirst, but of hearing the words of God. And look at this, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. You see, here's the mistake we make. We read the words of the prophet, and we say, he's so mean, he's so cranky. Why is he saying such negative things? Why don't he just encourage the people and tell them that, you know, take your vitamins and get a good night's sleep, and, and, and don't do that, don't do that. You, you, why, don't, why, why doesn't the prophet come with that tone? What we don't realize, friends, is that the prophet is actually a messenger of God's mercy. 
The prophet is like smelling salts to wake us up because we're falling asleep. We're somnolescent in our sins. We are approving of all the wickedness going on in the world. And we're thinking, you know what? The government will fix it. We'll vote a new president in and they'll fix it. They'll bring down inflation. And we keep looking to our gods for solution. And what the prophet is warning us about is the summer is ending. The summer is ending. Wake up. This is the time to repent. And when God takes away his word, you no longer hear the preacher. You no longer hear the prophet. And people begin to say, I wonder what God is saying about this. Let's run to Jerusalem. Well, there are no prophets in Jerusalem. Let's run to Dan. Let's run to Bethel. Let's go across the sea. Let's find what the prophet is saying. And they can't find the prophet because the time for hearing God's word is over. And that day is coming, brothers and sisters. In the Apostles' Creed, well, before we even get to the Apostles' Creed, the question is, when the end comes, yes, we know the end is coming. When the end comes, will you find, will God find faithful people on the earth? Will God find you as one who belongs to him through faith? And as we read in the Apostles' Creed, we say this Sunday after Sunday, that Christ will come again to judge who? I know you're afraid to say it. Christ will come again to judge who? The living and the dead. We don't know when that's going to happen. But we know it's going to happen. Christ is coming. He will come in glory. He will come not as a lamb to be slaughtered. He will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to judge the living and the dead. And when that end comes, friends, there is only one refuge to run to. The gods in Dan and Bethel, the golden calf, our political positions, none of those things will save us. There's only one sure refuge. We turn to the God who is holy. We turn to the God who judges. We turn to the God who forgives. We turn to the God who saves and we repent. And the truest embodiment of God's power to save then is found in Jesus. Let me close with a familiar passage that you've read over and over again. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. God, this is the part we don't read many times, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. And then we read these words, but those who believe in him and are not condemned, those who believe in him and are not condemned, but those who do not believe, are already condemned because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is a judgment that light has come into the world, but the world has loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We know ourselves. And I want you to know that God loves you. And I want you to know that every day that you wake up is a sign that you have one more day to get right with God, to turn your life over to Him. And I urge you this morning to come to Him and be saved. Come to Him and turn, turn to Him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen.